Well, I want to echo what Kenny said. Um, one of the privileges of speaking is you get to pick who does the music. So Brooks was my choice. Uh, I love his father, but Brooks has a much better name. So anyways. <laughs> if you have your Bibles, turn to Joshua chapter 3. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 3 and 4 today. Uh, this passage I chose because it is a passage of a lot of hope. The Israelites had the promise from Abraham 470 years earlier that they would be a great nation and that they would have their own land and they would enter into that land. Keep in mind 470 years is twice as long as the United States has been a country. That promise waited 470 years to be fulfilled. And I, I just I want to touch briefly on this topic, very, very briefly, as we think about the Israelites and the promised land and what we're going through today at the last day of 2023. Uh, Christians care about all suffering, but most especially we care about eternal suffering. And in the scope of that, I think it's right and wise and biblical of us to pray for Israelites who are Christians, we call those Messianic Jews, those who believe that the Messiah has come and will come again, and we pray for Palestinian Christians, of which there are many from what I've heard. We pray that God would look after them, we pray that they would be salt and light where they are at, and we pray for peace, we pray that God's will would be done in the midst of a very, very painful situation. And so that's as far as I want to go with that. But just as we think of what we're going to read about today, I think in light of incidents or things that are happening today, to, to look to that and to pray appropriately for our brothers and sisters in that part of the world. But pivoting back to Israel in these chapters, uh, these two chapters of the book of Joshua are a huge point where the nation of Israel is now looking to the future. Remember, they came out of Egypt. The land was promised to them. They're on their way to the promised land. They make a stop over at Mount Sinai. Things don't go so well for them there. And then they walk away from their God, and their God says, as we get to the promised land, go into it, spy it out, and I'm going to give it to you. They don't have the faith, and God pulls them back from the promised land, and every man, every woman of that generation dies off over 40 years in the wilderness. You didn't trust me. You were scared for your sons and daughters. It will be your sons and daughters who will inherit the promised land, not you. And they wander around in the desert for 40 years as they slowly die off. And the last two of that generation who do not die off, who had faith, were Joshua and Caleb, that God will bring us this land. God will be the one who will go ahead of us. And so they're pivoting as they start to look and they head into this next stage and they're heading into it. God gave them the law at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. He gives them the second law, exact same law, just re-given to the next generation in the book of Deuteronomy. That's what Deuteronomy means. It means second law, Deuteros. It's the second law. So the next generation, we're going in, the hope is building. We're actually going to get into this land that our God has promised us. And so there's this great hope as they step into this potential of what will happen. And so I think that's appropriate for us as we look to, it's about 13 hours from now, we step into the hope, the potential of a brand new year. So many things, so many possibilities ahead of us. We haven't even broken that new year yet, but it's all out there. Not one minute has been wasted yet. 
We haven't sat on social media for 15 minutes and burned up any of it. Not yet. We're stepping into that new year. Maybe this will be the year that I learn how to surf. Well, there's more of you in this congregation than in the last one that that's a possibility. But maybe this will be the year that uh, I lose 10 pounds, 15 pounds. Maybe this will be the year that I figure out what in the world chat GPT is. Um, on a more eternal note, maybe this will be the year that I will be reconciled to that family member, that friend, that it has been months or years since we have spoken words of forgiveness and reconciliation. Maybe this will be the year that that addiction that has tormented me for months or years, alcohol or drugs or pornography, maybe this will be the year that that will be something that'll be in the rearview mirror. Maybe this will be the year that I share the gospel with a neighbor or invite someone to church. We're gonna talk about that in this passage. 2024 is less than 13 hours away and it has unlimited potential for the people of God. And this is where the Jews were at as they're on the precipice of heading into the promise that was given to their ancestor the anticipation of what may come. So let's read this passage together, and then there's gonna be four aspects of this passage that I wanna talk about, four things that are gonna be on your outline. As the Jews, we're looking to the new world, and we are looking to a new year as we step into that. So I'm going to read the entirety of Joshua chapter three and four. I'm reading from the ESV version. Uh, if you have another version, they will be close. They're both the word of God. They just sound different. All right, here we go. Uh, Joshua chapter three. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and they set out for Shittim. And they came to the Jordan and he and all the people of Israel lodged there. And before they passed over, at the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people. As soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go before you have passed, because you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourself, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel that they may know that I was with Moses, so I shall be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when they come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan, and, the, and Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing and the waters coming down from, all, from above shall stand in one heap. 
So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priest bearing the Ark were dipped into the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest, the waters came down from above and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is called Zarethan. And those flowing down towards the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until the nation finished passing over the Jordan. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, take 12 men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, take 12 stones from out of the midst of the Jordan and from the very place where the, the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the 12 men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe, and Joshua said to them, pass on before the ark of your God into the midst of the Jordan and take up each one of you a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord had told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan in the place where the feet of the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant and the priest bearing the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. The people passed over in haste. And when all the people had finished passing over, the Ark of the Lord and the priest passed over before the people. The sons of Reuben, the sons of Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel, as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him, just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And the Lord said to Joshua, command the priest bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priest, come up out of the Jordan. And when the priest bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan and the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Lord returned to their, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all of its banks as before. The people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month and encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones which, took out, which were taken out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? 
Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord our God dried up the waters of the Jordan for all until we had passed over. The Lord our God did it to just as he had done to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So that all the people of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. This is God's word. So, if you are taking notes today, four areas that we are going to step into, four aspects of this passage that hold bearing for the Israelites and for us. Number one, the holiness of God. The holiness of God. A.W. Tozer, in his masterful book called The Knowledge of the Holy, says this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. Catch what he's saying. Your concept of God, your concept of who God is, will be what you implicitly kind of tack towards the rest of your life. And first and foremost your concept of God should be about his holiness, his separateness. This idea of holiness has gotten kind of watered down in the 21st century. Most people speak of holy this and holy that. The Hebrew word for holy is kadesh, which means apartness or sacredness or separateness. It shows that God is altogether holy or separate, sacred, from all other things. Look at the text, look at what we read, and remember, what was the distance between the Ark of the Covenant and the people that were to follow? It's an Old Testament way of measuring things. Cubits were from your tip of your hands to about a medium-sized man, the tip of his finger, to about here. 2,000 cubits is about 10 football fields. Keep 10 football fields between the Ark and the people. This is meant to represent the the distance, the separateness of God and the people that he is leading. Remember, this isn't an isolated incident. If you've ever read the book of Second Samuel and you've read when David tried to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem for the first time. Second time he was successful. First time, they bring it up on a cart that's pulled by a couple ox and he's got some of his men around to kind of guard it because he's heard what's happened. Where the ark was at, that guy's house, that whole city was blessed. Tremendous things were happening. Their crops were growing, their livestock, their families were doing well. And so David's like, I want that in Jerusalem. Bringing the ark up the first time and this young man named Uzziah, the ox that's pulling it stumbles. He reaches out, touches the ark, struck dead immediately falls dead on the spot and the ark stays at that location for another nine months until David comes back and does it the right way. There's a distance between this God and his creation. This God is separate. You have this on your outline. Literally not to be trifled with or even symbolically brought down to the level of his creation. While there is a personal aspect to our God, we must remember what previous saints from early church history and the Reformation would call the creature-creator distinction. We are creatures. God is a creator. We are creatures. We're described as the new grass of the morning that springs up new, but by evening is dry and withered. We're vapor. We're a mist. 
It's here today and gone tomorrow. But God is immortal, the Alpha, the Omega, the unchanging one, the one who sits in unapproachable light, who has no beginning or no end. One of my favorite authors, R.C. Sproul, his best-selling book, the best book that R.C. Sproul ever put out, it's called The Holiness of God. He says this, the clearest sensation that a human being has when he experiences the holy is an overpowering and overwhelming sense of creatureliness. That is, we are in the presence of God. We are humbled and become most aware of ourselves as creatures. Have you ever stood in front of the Grand Canyon? You ever been up into the mountains where there's no ambient light from the city? Ever stood on the seashore like has been happening the past 36 hours and seen the waves just come rolling in? It gives you a sense of your smallness. But the other side of the equation is not just our smallness. It's the greatness of who created all these things. Who made these things? Yes, I am small, which should lead all rational people to ask the logical question, then who's great? If I'm small, if I'm made to feel this way in the the midst of such magnificent things, surely there's a corresponding greatness, a largeness, a creator who made all of these things. One of the things as the Israelites are heading into this promised land is the comfort of this radical chasm between the holy, between the creator, and the creature. When you're attempting the impossible, you don't need more men, you need the impossible. You don't need a better strategy, you need someone that can supersede boundaries supernaturally. And so if you look at the text again, If you're crossing into enemy territory, they're heading into the plain of Jericho. Jericho, if you keep reading, is the first city that they conquer. They're heading into that. They don't put their soldiers up front. Those 40,000 fighting men, that's how humans think. The soldiers go first in case things go sideways. Mm. God goes first. Soldiers follow behind. Who's going to do the conquering in this equation? J.I. Packer, another well-known author, says this, not till we have become humble and teachable, standing in awe of God's holiness and sovereignty, acknowledging our littleness, distrusting our own thoughts, and willing to have our minds turned upside down, can divine wisdom become ours. I pressed something? No, we're good. As we head into the new year, As we think about 2024, let's remember the holiness of our God. I get nervous when people pray prayers, sing songs. We don't sing songs in this church, but things like, Lord, show me your glory. Do you know what you're asking for? Do you know what it would be like to stand before a holy God? Someday, by the grace of God, we'll do that, but we'll do that through the grace of Jesus Christ. The man upstairs and other terms that bring the holiness of God down. Listen to how God speaks of himself in the book of Isaiah. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and all its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught. What he means there is prime ministers and presidents. 
The rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted. No sooner are they sown. No sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. This is our God. Every one of those little dots, he's got a name for all of them. He calls them out every night. Come forth, come forth. Not one of them is missing. And he knows your name too. So homework, each one of these has some homework because we are, I chose to go with it that way. Two pieces of homework for the new year. Number one, remember to pray in a way that reverences God. Remember to pray, adjust your prayers to pray the way that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Remember how Jesus taught his disciples? He didn't teach them to pray for all the prayer requests. Lord, I need food or pray they get a job or pray I marry that girl. Mm. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Holy be thy name. We start with the holiness of God. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth, in Somalia, in Ukraine, in Gaza, as it is in heaven. And then give us this day our daily bread. Give us the things that we need. We pray for our individual. Let's pray in such a way that we reverence our God, that we recognize this is the creator. This is the one who sits in unapproachable light. I am creature. I am here today gone tomorrow. Father, I honor you as such. And then number two, we work to find two to five minutes a day. I realized when I was up here, that might be a little bit much for some. We may find two to five minutes a week. At the bare minimum, we find a chunk of time where we meditate on God, the creator. John Owen, who I just if you've never read, so okay, so there's going to be two authors I'm going to mention today that if you ever get any of their books, just read them. Owen's hard, but if you plow through them, you have a vocabulary that is better understanding of what previous Christians used to speak like. John Owen, 17th century Puritan, said this, if we regularly beheld the glory of Christ, our Christian walk with God would become more sweet and pleasant. Our spiritual light and strength would grow daily stronger and our lives would be more gloriously represent the glory of Christ. Death would be most welcome to us. Mm. I long to sit in a hospital bed and to fear not what comes tomorrow. I long for every one of us in here that we don't fear death. And the way we start with that is we acknowledge that the one who created us, the creator, is different. He lives on a different plane. He operates in a different manner. Let's work to find those minutes. Let's remember the holiness of our God. Number two, the remembrance of our God the remembrance of our God. Historians tell us that the Jordan River at normal times was about 90 to 100 feet wide. It was about 3 to 12 feet deep. But remember our text, remember what we read, this was the springtime, this was the time of harvest, and so it was at flood stage. If you remember the text we read, it's overflowing. And so at that time, it's closer to one mile wide, and it is a rushing torrent. 
I've crossed a lot of rivers. Some of you have crossed some rivers before and like cameras and Ziploc bags and all that kind of stuff. But remember, you're not trying to wade across this river to survive. You're trying to get all of your wife, your children, your livestock, everything you own. And these were not river-dwelling people. Where had they been the last 40 years? They've been wandering around in a desert. They don't know about any of these things. This is a terrifying time. And miracle number one, the floodwaters are stopped. They're held up at a certain point and they walk across, not on mushy ground. The text says what? On dry ground. They walk across on dry ground. I think the second miracle, it's lesser known. But from the time of the Passover, remember that night? when the death angel went through Egypt and killed all of the firstborn and only those who had the blood of the lambs on their doorpost, the angel passed over. This is where we get the Passover from. Jews still celebrate the Passover to this day. From the night of the first Passover till the day that they set foot on the dry ground of the Jordan River, 40 years exactly. 40 years to the day from when the king brought them out to where the king brought them over. The covenant-keeping God, the promise-keeping God. And five times in the book of Joshua, we see that God commands the Israelites to set up these memorials, to set up these stones for their children, for their grandchildren. And this is in your outline. The greatest enemy to any Christian is forgetfulness. Forgetfulness. Christians are prone to forget. We're prone to forget things. And if you read your Bible and if you study it, you'll see that the overwhelming sense through the book of Genesis is God remembered. God remembered. God remembered Abraham. Or excuse me, God remembered Adam and Eve after they'd sinned. He remembered Noah when the ark was riding high on the waves. He remembers Abraham and he spares Lot and his children. God remembers. But from Genesis on, And this is on your outline, but from Exodus on, excuse me, Exodus on, the emphasis is remembering, is not, the emphasis on remembering is not God remembering his promises, but the people remembering their God. The people remembering their God. Remember how I brought you out of Egypt. Remember how I kept you alive in the wilderness for 40 years. Remember how I saved you from being wiped out by the surrounding nations. Remember, remember. Humans are prone to forget. Every nation has statues, memorials. We have days of remembrance, 4th of July, Memorial Day, Thanksgiving. About a thousand new ones that pop up every year, it feels like. And Christians are no different. We have three primary things that we are called to remember, or kind of our memorials for us. Number one, when someone is saved from their sins, when they understand the grace in Jesus Christ and are made right with God, we have a ceremony to help them remember that they know these things and they are now part of the body of Christ. And that ceremony, we do in a public way. What do we call that ceremony? Baptism. That's baptism. So we do that regularly. We just did that a few weeks ago. Had a bunch of people getting baptized. And then we have another remembrance that we do about the most important thing about us as the people of God. The the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We hold a meal or a token of a meal. We have this little... It's changed since COVID and peeling off plastic tops and all that stuff. But we have this little thing that we eat. And what do we call that? 
communion. And then we have a day set aside where we gather together as the people of God to remember who we are. And this is on your outline. The church is where the people of God come together at the command of God to worship him in song, prayer, and the preaching of his word. This is our day of remembrance. This is, if you will, our 12 stones. Mom and dad, why do we go to, why do we go to that gathering every time? There's all these old people there. There's all these people that we don't know. There's all, this is a day of remembrance. This is how we train up our children. This is meant to be the time that we remember so well who we are. Yes, the church is meant to be a light to unbelievers, to those who do not know the gospel yet, to show a community of people that have almost nothing worldly in common, Republicans, Democrats, rich, poor, Padre fans, Dodger fans, Raider fans, and everybody else who doesn't have a jail record. There, there's a... There's different people that gather. I said that, yeah, and I just remembered there's a Raider fan here in the crowd today um, with a Raider shirt on. Sorry about that. My, well, kind of. But the church is primarily not for unbelievers. Hear me say this clearly. The church is not primarily for unbelievers. We praise God when people who don't know the gospel come to church services. That's a good thing. I am regularly trying to get those that I, don't, that I know from my community coming here who I don't think understand this. But the church is for believers. It's for Christians. We gather as a family. People that know each other so well that we can encourage when we, sh when we see that they need encouragement. We can call one another out when we see that someone is not living in a manner consistent with the gospel. And most importantly, a gathered group that reminds us of our true identity, our true country. Those of you that have read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or you've watched the movie, the movie did a good job on a few things, it missed a few things, as Aslan, the Christ character, and Aslan's paraphrasing Jesus Christ when he says this, once a king or queen in Narnia, always a king or queen. You're from a different country. You don't belong to the United States of America. You don't belong to San Diego. You don't belong to California. You don't belong on this earth. You belong to a different country. You're a king and queen from another land. And this day of remembrance is where we gather those other members that know of that country. One of my favorite authors, and I just, as we come into this, the church helps us in our marriages. The church helps us in our singleness. The church helps us in our parenting. The church helps us in ways that more and more people are starting to recognize and quantify. One of my favorite people to follow on Twitter is Dr. Nancy Piercy. If you guys are Twitter, Facebook, whatever people, I'm not that great at it. I follow Twitter a little bit, but Nancy Piercy, she's a scholar in residence at Houston Christian University. She writes regularly on the issue of Christians and Christians being salt and light, and she pulls from hard data that is recognized even by secular sources. She wrote this in a recent book, Devout Christian Men... Those who attend church regularly, that's what she means when he says devout, are more loving to their wives and more emotionally engaged with their children than any other group in America. 
They are the least likely to divorce and they have the lowest levels of domestic abuse and violence. Furthermore, according to secular news outlets like the New York Times, it turns out that the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. Fully 73% of wives who hold conservative gender values and attend religious services regularly with their husbands have high quality marriages. This prompts the question, and this is right to the point because everybody in the room has got this question. Why do so many demographic studies show that the divorce rates between Christians and non-Christians are comparable? It comes down to those who are nominal Christians, those who are sporadic in their church membership. They spend less time with their children either in discipline or in shared activities, their wives report significantly lower levels of happiness and their marriages are far less stable. Whereas active evangelical men are 35% less likely to divorce than secular men, nominal Christian men are 20% more likely to divorce than secular men. Finally, the real stunner Whereas committed church-going couples report the lowest rate of violence of any group, 2.8%, nominals report the highest rate of any group, 7.2%, even higher than secular couples. What's the takeaway? Regular church membership matters. Regular church attendance matters. It's not this throwaway, well, if I feel like it, I'm not saying that church attendance will make you the best father, the best mother, the best parent. It'll all of a sudden straighten out all aspects of your life. But if you want to stack the deck in your favor, be a faithful church member. Young ladies in the congregation, if he's not faithful in the church, don't marry him. Young men, if she's not that into church, she likely won't be that into you in a few years. And parents, if your kids don't develop an appetite for the church while they're under your roof, it's the heights of denial to think that they will find it when they leave for college. Where do we find our North Star as the people of God in the new covenant? Where do we remember who we are? We find it in Sunday. We find it in regular church attendance. As boring and as vanilla as that sounds, Ephesians 3.10, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. It's the church that reminds us of how we are to live as faithful husbands, loving fathers, transparent brothers. This is on your outline. Our God has lovingly set up for us a regular time of remembrance, a time where the background music of the world is turned down and the anthem of heaven is turned up. It's called the gathering of the church. So this is your homework for the year. You can guess where number one is going. Let's be as faithful as possible in church attendance. Not for Kenny, not for Nathan, not for CEBC, not for great donuts or whatever, not for the donuts, for your soul, for your marriage, for your parenting, for you. This is how you remember. This is how you point your children to the 12 stones in the new covenant. You're regular in church membership. And then number two was kind of phrased for the first congregation. Let's linger longer. So some of the 
first service people tend to be escape experts. They sneak out before we gather out there. Some of you second service people tend to be late arrival experts. Just as Kenny's getting, just as Nathan or Brooks or whoever's starting to plink the guitar, you show up. Come early. We want to see your face. We need to see your face. And whether you realize it or not, you need to see our face. And linger means that it's not a church thing. It's, not, it's something that is healthy for the body. We meet new people. We go outside. It's not always these four people clustered together and they're talking about their own little patch of life. We meet other people, especially unbelievers that are coming for the first time. What a wonderful thing to have people intentionally looking. Who are the new people? Who are the new people? We linger longer. And then we sing louder. If this once a week gathering is truly the people of God, we are a city on a hill, an embassy of God in a foreign land. We should have the most joy of any group who gathers. We sing louder. I'm not the best singer. I praise God for Nathan. I'm not even a very good singer. I praise God for people who do have that gift, but we sing as loud as possible to represent who we are. We represent that we are a city on a hill. We have a kingdom that has yet to come. We're already members of that kingdom, but that kingdom hasn't come fully in power yet. Someday it will. And we sing, and we gather, and we mingle, and we eat donuts like it's true. That's what we do as the people of God. So let's remember that. Let's remember who we are. Let's remember our God. Number three, the mission of God. The close of chapter four says this, the Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when they dried it up before us until he had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful. Those of you that have read and know your Bibles know that the Great Commission is not a New Testament concept. It's a God concept. All the way back from Genesis chapter three, the fall of mankind, God has always wanted all peoples, all nations, all languages to know him, not just the people of Israel. But in the Old Testament, the concept of how the gospel would go out, how other nations would know him, was that Israel would follow their God so closely they would obey the commands of God so well that other nations would see, oh my goodness, the River Jordan dried up. And famously, if you keep reading the book of Joshua, there's a woman who actually is one of the great, 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 great grandmothers of Jesus. She's a prostitute. Yes, he has an interesting backstory. It's an incredible, gracious backstory. She's from another nation. She sees the River Jordan dried up. She believes in this God. She becomes the great, great grandmother of the Redeemer. Other nations would see what God did with his people, and by that, they would get saved. The nations would come to Israel. And this is on your outline. In the New Testament, however, the plan is not that the nations come to the people of God, but that the people of God go to the nations. The Old Testament motif, they come to the people of God. The New Testament motif, the people of God go to them. That's why we send out missionaries. That's why we are called to send people. The most famous passage in the New Testament that illustrates this point, and I'm not going to read it, is Acts 1, 6 through 8. It talks about the old motif and the new motif. 
I'm just going to put a little plug in here for the missions course that's coming up. Those of you that have read and understand the Great Commission know that Romans chapter 10 Verses 13 through 15 talks about a two-part equation. If we're going to get the gospel, if we're supposed to send our members to the ends of the earth, there's a two-part equation there. The one part is we got to have people who go. That guy who got up and prayed, some of you had your heads bowed so you didn't see him. He's kind of a big guy. He's got no hair on the top of his head. He shaves it ready. Philip Dom, he's one of our goers. That's the first part to the equation. We have to have goers who go. But then there's a second part to the equation of the Great Commission. It's the senders, goers and senders. Romans 10, if you don't believe me. Romans 10, 13 through 15. Goers go, senders. And in this room, about 99% of us are going to be senders. I used to be a goer. Now I'm a sender. I help send the doms to the ends of the earth. The missions course, coming back to that, the missions course is not for the goers, it's not designed for those people who want to go to the ends of the... Well, I don't want to be a missionary. Great, the course isn't for you. Or excuse me, the course is for you. It's designed for the senders. Those who are going to stay in San Diego, California. Who are going to send the doms to the ends of the earth. If you think you want to be a goer, then don't go to the missions course. But if you think you're going to be a sender, go to the missions course. It's going to help you a lot. It's going to help you understand a lot of the things that we're talking about briefly this morning. So that's my 30-second, probably close to one-minute plug for the missions course. In our passage this morning, we see that God wanted all peoples of the earth, those who are far away and those who are nearby, to know his glory. And as senders, or as we have goers who go, we see the great commission accomplished. So your homework when it comes to this particular area is number one, we raise our sons and daughters to be goers. We raise our sons and daughters to be goers. I give a message on this once in a while to a group of pastors around the country. The heroes that you set in front of your sons and daughters will be what they aspire to be. If you set in front of them Amy Carmichael, if you set in front of them Gladys Allward, if you set in front of them Adniram Judson, Jim Elliott, you set in front of them David Brainerd. They'll aspire to be those people. How do you set them in front of them? You read them books about them at night before they go to bed. You say, if you someday feel like the Lord is calling you into missions, we'll be proud of you. You don't stack the deck against that. And that's where a lot of Christians, Kevin DeYoung will say that the last unquestioned Christian idol is the family. Lord, please don't send, send somebody else's kids. Please don't send mine. Raise your sons and daughters to be goers. Number two, we let the Great Commission affect our life here. As we head into 2024, let's let the Great Commission affect our life here. And the number one piece of advice, take people like the Doms out to coffee. Take them out to breakfast. Pray for them. If they need a few bucks, give them a few bucks. You know why? Not for the money. People pray where their money goes. If you're giving towards something, you generally pray about that particular thing. The Doms are going to Indonesia. They're going to one of the, the most populous Muslim country on the face of the earth. It's not in the Middle East. It's out in the Pacific. It's Indonesia. They're going there. They're going to have to learn one language. Then they're going to have to learn a second language of the language group that has no church among them. Get to know them. Let the Great Commission affect your life here. I praise God for Dave Johnson. Patton Willis, Johnson, Marv and Shirley Friedman, all with the Lord. 
who stood behind Nina and I the day that they laid their hands on us when we were on this stage and we headed off many, many, many years ago to see the MBMB people reached. Be the next Dave Johnsons in the congregation. Be the next Marv and Shirley Friedmans. Let the Great Commission affect your life here. And then number three, share your faith. Share your faith here. That's not the Great Commission. Let's not conflate missions and evangelism. We're not missionaries to San Diego. That's a bad mixing of terms that most people don't understand. We're not missionaries here, but we're faithful church members. And faithful church members share their faith. Let's make the most of 2024. Let's invite our coworkers. Let's invite those who God has put providentially into our life to understand the gospel. That means some of you, some of you have an emotional wallet that has about $2 in it. And that means that having that type of a conversation is just huge. Then you've got Dave Warrens, you've got Zach Shiras, and I love Kenny Dodd. Kenny, is the, he knows people's names. Someday he's going to tell me a secret. Probably knows so many people's names that well. They've got about $1,000 in their emotional wallet. You know what the key is? Spend what's in your wallet. Whatever your capacity is, spend it. You know what your most valuable tool in evangelism is? Invite people to church. Let them come. Enjoy the donuts. Come for the view. Stay for the gospel. It's, it's possible. Get them in here and they'll hear it. They'll sing about it. They'll hear it prayed about. They'll hear it taught from the pulpit. Let's share our faith here. And then last one, let's pray for our 18 sister churches around the world by name. For the Tarahumara. For the Iwam. For the Palikur. Some of you in this congregation don't know this, but someday when we get to heaven, the lineage of this church the thing that will be the banner arc across this church most likely will be our 18 sister congregations in minority languages that are a result of missionaries being sent out of here. Do you understand that heritage? What an incredible thing. There is no church like this that I have seen and I preach all over the country and the world. There's no church like this anywhere in the English speaking world. None in, even close. We have pastors flying in. Nathan doesn't tell you this. We have pastors flying in from other parts of the country to study what's happening at this church, to look at our missions policies because it's so different than most every other church. There are others that would kill for this legacy. Praise God for it. Pray for it. Pray for those congregations around the world that came into being as a result. Number four, the last one. The salvation of God. The salvation of God. By God's grace, we know the rest of the story. Yes, the Israelites entered into the promised land. They gained victory. They won the land. They lived there. And then 18 generations passed. And they walked with God, and they walked away from God. They walked with God, and they walked away from God. And this is the story from Joshua to Matthew. They were in, they were out. And finally, they go into exile. During the time of the Old Covenant, the distance between God and man was mandated. It was difficult to get close, to stay close to God. His presence, his perfection, you don't get close to this God. He is perfect, and that's still the case today. But after 18 generations, a man came, the God-man, who made a way to have peace with God in a way never known before. Under the new covenant written in the blood of Jesus Christ, the God-man, there is no longer any distance. 
for those who understand this God-man and the work that he did, God doesn't come to live close to you. He comes to live in you. That's the closeness now in the new covenant. This distance of 10 football fields, these priests who would go into the Holy of Holies and they would tie a rope around their ankle because if they hadn't consecrated themselves, they would stop moving in the temple and no one could go in lest they too be struck dead and they had to drag their bodies out. That no longer exists for those who know this man. But there are three things. Number one, you have to have an understanding of your sin. You have to recognize your sin. J.C. Ryle, a 19th century Anglican bishop, when the Anglicans were Orthodox, said this, the plain truth is that a right knowledge of sin lies at the root of all saving Christianity. Without it, such doctrines as justification, conversion, sanctification are words and names which convey no meaning to the mind. If you don't recognize your own sin, you have no place in understanding Christianity. People only ask for help when they're in need, in a position they cannot get themselves out of. Only people who recognize the immensity of their sin that they cannot save themselves, they cannot live in a way that will be good enough for God, they're the ones who start looking for answers outside of themselves. When we were over in New Guinea, some of you guys know that my wife and I served for 13 years in Yembiembi. It's one of the churches on there, <clears throat> the 18 sister churches. We had no word for savior. The Yembis had no concept. They had a warrior who was at the front. He was the biggest guy who held the shield, and that guy had a particular name, but they had no concept of a savior, a hero figure who would save people independently. But we did have a concept that we ended up employing for the savior figure. The Yembi Yembis, when they hike, they hike long distances, and they run up against rivers, and these rivers are impassable. If you try and cross these rivers, you're going to get sucked down, rolled across the rocks, and you get killed. And so they find the narrowest point in the river, and they drop a tree, and they cut this tree, and it falls right across the river, and they walk across the tree to the other side. And it's really easy to walk across a tree at the beginning when it's at the base where it's really fat. But as you get these long trees and you're nearing the end of it and the tree is right on the precipice of the bank, it gets skinnier and skinnier and the branches start popping out and they start knocking people if they're not careful into the water. And sometimes when we would travel, there would be sick people with us. There would be older people with us. There would be kids with us who didn't have the stability of their footing to walk across at the very end. So you know what the Yembis did? They named a man, one man, and they called him the bridge man. And his job was to take the sick people, the weak people, the older people, and put them on his back and carry them from one side to the other. His name was the bridge man. And you know what the bridge man job? He carried them to the other side. You know what the people on the back, they only had one job. Be quiet and don't help. Do not try and help. The more you try and help, the more likely it is we go in the water and we both die. The bridge man who takes us from Satan's side to God's side. You added nothing to this equation. Silence, don't try and help. You try and help and you go in the water. This is the picture of our God, the Christ who came, who brought us to the other side. 
says this on your outline for number two. You have to believe in the answer that God provides. Through him, we are made righteous in the eyes of a holy, unapproachable God. When God the Father looks at believers, Christians, he doesn't see our sin. He sees his son's sinlessness. This is how the distance is collapsed. He doesn't see you. If he sees you, you still got 10 football fields to deal with. But he doesn't see you. He sees his son. And you believing in his son and what his son did for you on that cross collapses that distance and he comes to live with you. In you. Through his spirit. And then finally, we live now as citizens of a different country. We have an entirely different perspective. We see the world differently. We see money differently. We see retirement differently. We see our neighbors differently. We see our children differently. We see everything with new eyes because we belong to a new country. We're not the same as we used to be once we understand the work of the bridge man. Coming back to J.C. Ryle, who was an Englishman who saw many soldiers die during his lifetime. He said this, no soldier of Christ is ever lost, missing, or left dead on the battlefield. No mourning will ever need to be put on, no tears to be shed for either private or officer in the army of Christ. The muster roll when the last evening comes will be found precisely the same as it was in the morning. The English guards who marched out of London to the Crimean campaign, a magnificent body of men, but many of the gallant fellows laid their bones in a foreign grave, and they never saw London again. Far different shall be the arrival of the Christian army in the city which hath foundations whose builder and maker is God. No one shall be found lacking. The words of our great captain shall be found true. Of them which thou hast given me, I have lost none. Surely, this is good news. We belong to a different nation. We belong to a different country. We belong to a different army. And someday, all who belong to Christ will be gathered together. The last piece of homework, let's meditate on the truth that our God saves and those he saves will never be lost. Glorious truths of Christianity. You can never lose your salvation. Once saved, always saved. There will not be one lost who belongs to Christ. Let's meditate on this. Presidential elections will come and go. Borders will be strengthened and weakened. Countries will rise and fall, but the king knows all these things. In fact, he has ordered each and every event to happen precisely according to his sovereign will. And the king has not lost sight of his sheep. He will rescue, keep, and preserve us and bring us safely home someday. To him be the glory and the praise forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us in giving us the book of Joshua. The lessons that we can learn from this captain, but from your people and more importantly from how you dealt with your people May we recognize your holiness. May we be a people who long to be close to you. We thank you that you are not like us. You are creator, we are creature. But in the creator we find hope and that you can supersede all boundaries. And Lord, help us to be a people who remember well. And by remembering, help us to be faithful church members. 
Help us to gather with the people of God. Help us to be better husbands, wives, mothers, grandparents, children. And Lord, the best instruction for that will be through your time gathered together as the people who regularly honor you. And Father, we pray that we would be faithful in not just bringing this gospel and recognizing this gospel and savoring it and singing it here on Sunday, that we'd be faithful with our neighbors, our coworkers. Lord, help us to be brave, uncommonly brave people here and to the ends of the earth. And Lord, help us to remember our salvation, that we are saved from our sins, not by anything we have done. We would be drowning in the water, Father, if it wasn't for you. But you, in the perfect time, sent your Son, who made a way for us so that we could be reconciled to you. May we forever savor that incredible grace. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Our doxology uh, comes, end of the service comes from Jude chapter 24, or verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Have a great new year.